What does it mean to be a friend? What does it mean to keep a friend? What does it mean to feel connected? Let's think about it. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to every single one of you, and welcome to Thinking is Cool, the show designed to make your next conversation better than your last. I'm Kinsey Grant, a journalist, the host of this show, and someone who at one somewhat regrettable point in her high school life counted how many people wished her a happy birthday on her Facebook wall and used said tally as an instrument for measuring social capital. This is my season two finale. Throughout the 17 episodes I have published so far of Thinking is Cool, I've always endeavored to ask big questions. Sometimes I have answers to those questions. Most of the time, I do not. But the constant has always been a heavy dose of what might the world look like if? If we abolished Greek life? If we could find common ground politically? If we recognized the power of and appropriately regulated big tech? If we ended homelessness? What might the world look like if we did what we needed to do to make it better? A lot would change. We might have to rejigger our tax season expectations. We might have to get used to voting because it's the right thing to do and not because Instagram made an I voted sticker for our stories. We might have to question our own assumptions more regularly. But I think the biggest change of all might be the change that doing the right thing would shepherd into our relationships with one another. Good and bad, moral and immoral, they're rarely black and white, and they're never obvious. But I think, I really do think, that all of us can agree that it's always best to try to do the right thing for the most people. Perhaps we've lost sight of that common aim, that drive to do good by our fellow man, in a world that moves too fast. I've been guilty of it, of getting so wrapped up in the fight over what's good and what's not that I forget most of us are working toward the same goal. We might have differences in opinion on how we get there, but humanity isn't lost yet. I'm at times discouraged, but I've never fully lost hope that by and large, we want what's best for each other. And by centering ourselves on that one commonality instead of our vast differences, we might be able to more than just talk about making the world a better place. So today, I wanna do something a little different. I want to open the floor to a topic that's nebulous and unspecific and incredibly important, the very idea of friendships. What does it mean to be a friend? What does it mean to keep a friend? What does it mean to feel connected by that one aim to leave this place better than we found it? Today, we're going to think about it. As always, thank you to our friends at Fundrise for making this episode and this entire season possible. I loved exploring the eccentricities of the real estate world with Fundrise in my last episode, and I hope you loved hearing about it. Of course, more from Fundrise later on in the show. And thank you to all of you for getting me here, the finale of my second season of my very own show. If you read my newsletter or follow me on TikTok, you know that I have had a little bit of a tough couple of weeks. I have struggled here and there, but I would not have gotten to this season's finish line without you and your support and perspective and encouragement. So thank you. This really does feel like a community and I am counting my blessings that I get to be part of it. Now, let's talk about friendship. As always, nothing is off limits. Everything is on the table. Take it anywhere. And remember, thinking is cool. And so are you. This episode is about connection. So let's connect. 
It's gonna be you and me here today and just the two of us. And I'm gonna tell you about all that I have learned throughout an entire season questioning the ties that bind us to one another. And my hope is that you learn something new and think a little more about what it means to be part of this ever-connected and interconnected world. The kind of world in which friendships, relationships, connection, they're all waiting for you at the click of a button. Let's get started by giving ourselves an honest assessment of how friendships and the effort to make them change. When we were little, we met friends mostly because of circumstance. You became close with whomever was in the same class in preschool. You stayed close if you had mutual interests come first grade, and that was pretty much that. For me, there were Sarah and Kelly. Sarah's mom and my mom were in the hospital at the same time, sowing the accidental seeds for a long friendship and many joint birthday parties. We were in the same class at school and we both loved horses. Kelly came to our school about third grade and immediately gravitated toward us as a fellow horse girl. And then one day I ran into Kelly at my piano lesson where she also took classes. That was all we needed to ensure a solid decade of friendship. In sixth grade, a new family moved into the house next door to mine and their daughter, Hannah, was my age. That daughter is today my closest friend in the world. Truthfully, Hannah and I don't have all that much in common, aside from some very good years as neighbors and some incredible memories. But back then, she played volleyball and I got cut from tryouts. And today, she's married and has the world's cutest baby and I have a plant. (laughs) But as early as middle school, we knew that we would be in each other's lives forever. Sometimes we talk all day. Other times we go a whole week without catching up. I haven't seen her in person since February, but her friendship is kind of like the stars. Even when I can't see it, I know it's there. You might be wondering why I am waxing poetic about my best friend, so I'll tell you why. First of all, my best friend Hannah is the kindest, humblest person, and I take every chance I get to talk about her. But second, I want you to think about the defining friendships of your youth in juxtaposition to the friendships of today. Now let me tell you about another friend, Lauren. Lauren is a friend I made during the pandemic. We first became connected through work. I hosted an event for her and then got to know her kind of through Google Docs. The first time we met in real life was several months later when she pitched in to help plan the Thinking is Cool launch party. Today, I'm lucky to see her and hear her infectious laugh pretty often. But for the first six months of our now friendship, she was an avatar in a Google Doc and a phone number with a ton of wit. The way that we make keep and classify friends has unalterably changed to a point of no return. Once college orientation is over, it seems we age out of the very obvious situations in which everyone is trying to make connections and age into a new world dominated primarily by forging friendships from behind screens. And that's where I want to start today. Let's devote some time to really thinking about friendship in the information age. It was not a happy accident that Facebook used the word friend and subsequently turned it into a commonly used verb. It was a conscious choice, and it was one that's reverberated throughout our human evolution. I could tell you about the toxicity associated with friending and unfriending and the concept of a MySpace top eight, but you likely already know that song and dance, so let's instead consider for a moment how a once novel concept has changed the way we connect with like-minded individuals. To me, The advent of online social networks have upended the ideals of friendship, sometimes for the better. We have an endless array of choices when it comes to whom we befriend and why. 
You can connect based on a shared love for corgis or a penchant for fall-themed coffees or an almost cult-like worship of an influencer. Geographic proximity be damned. For all their unbelievable shortcomings, social media gave us that. The ability to connect with people you might otherwise never encounter. I've made true friends online, friends who support and lift me up and do more than just like my tweets and proofread my scripts. There's Dan, there's the other Dan, and Mary, and Julie, and Danny, and Jake, and I've only met some of them in real life, but that doesn't diminish the positive impact that they have had on me. With many of those friends, the relationship started with something as simple as a DM. I liked what you said about X. I want to push you on Y. Can you believe Z? Simple conversation. Sometimes it goes nowhere, but sometimes it opens the door to meaningful connection if two parties are willing. I'm not just talking about the random people you meet on spring break in 2012 and then continue to like all of your Instagram posts for the next decade. I'm talking about people invested in your life and you and theirs. People willing to be there for you just as you are for them. It's possible for those kinds of connections to start on the internet. But like we talked about in the very first episode of this season about dating apps, there is such a thing as the paradox of choice. When given infinite choices, we find ourselves unable to settle on anything. Just as there are seemingly infinite chads working in iBanking who are from Greenwich to go on one or two shitty dates with, there are seemingly infinite friends to be made online. It would be entirely reasonable to suggest that such a paradox of choice makes forging and maintaining online relationships difficult or even impossible. So it makes me wonder... Does a friendship facilitated by the internet become less meaningful because of the nature of its genesis? The honest answer is a little unsatisfying, but I'll give it to you anyway. It depends. It depends on how willing two internet-connected people are to put in the effort to become close and to stay close. It depends on your appetite for long-distance relationships. It depends on your existing social circles and circumstances. It depends on what you're seeking discourse, clout, a new revenue stream, or a friend. At the root of it, though, is the idea that we seek out meaningful relationships until we no longer have the capacity to do so. So with that, let's talk about something called Dunbar's number. In 1993, a British anthropologist named Dr. Robin Dunbar devoted himself to understanding the nature of meaningful relationships— And FYI, Dr. Dunbar defines meaningful relationships as those people you know well enough to greet without feeling awkward if you run into them in the airport. It led Dr. Dunbar to a hypothesis creatively named and known as Dunbar's number. I'm going to read you this bit about Dunbar's number from the BBC because honestly, I found it totally interesting. Quote, according to Dr. Dunbar, the magic number is 150. Dunbar became convinced that there was a ratio between brain sizes and group sizes through his studies of non-human primates. This ratio was mapped out using neuroimaging and observation of time spent on grooming and important social behavior of primates. Dunbar concluded that the size relative to the body of the neocortex, the part of the brain associated with cognition and language, is linked to the size of a cohesive social group. This ratio limits how much complexity a social system can handle, end quote. With that, Dunbar came to the conclusion that humans can handle about 150 meaningful relationships at a time. For many people, more than 150 overloads their social system and potentially degrades existing relationships. For me, I'm not so sure I can even get to 150, so I tried. 
Okay, take one of trying to figure out how many friends and acquaintances I have. The obvious place to start is with my family. So that's three. And then all of the rest of my cousins, that's nine. Uh, with my aunts and uncles, 10, 11, 12. My boyfriend, 13. Josh, Jenny, and Allie, 14, 15, 16. Um, and then bleh, that's where it gets messy because of all the people in college. The group chat that I'm in with all of my college girlfriends is 11 people. So I was at what, 16 before? So 27 people. Uh, but then there are also my friends on Twitter. I'm gonna count one, two, three, four, five. Six. We'll do six. So it was at 27, 30, that's 33. Um, and then who else am I friends with? Oh, of course, my best friend from home, Hannah, 34. Uh, and then I guess Hannah's family is, is close enough to family. So her husband is 35. I'm not going to kill her baby. Um, her parents, 36, 37. Her brother's 38, 39. Is that it? Do I have, I, could I count my sister's friends? I will, I'm close with them. I'm close enough with them. Let's call that like an even 43. But then it, that's where it gets difficult. I would say that's my first two layers of friendship and acquaintances and close personal relationships. And beyond that, I, I don't know. I mean, my school was very small. I could name everybody who went to my college who was in, in my class, but that would add on about 400 people. But I don't think that I would count all of those people as close acquaintances. So do I only have like 40 friends? <laughs> eh, whatever. Now, using historical, anthropological, and contemporary psychological data about group sizes, Dunbar's team found a pretty remarkable pattern. This theoretical 150 relationship limit rang as true for early hunter-gatherer societies as it does for more modern groups like offices, factories, residential campsites, the military, 11th century English villages, even Christmas card lists. Networks, whatever they look like, tend to corrode when they exceed about 150. Of course, Dunbar's hypothesis is not perfect. Extroverts, <clears throat> anyone who's not me, tend to have larger social circles. Women tend to have more close friends than men. And much of the research supporting this 150 figure skews toward the WEIRD communities of the world. WEIRD in all caps, meaning Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And according to the BBC, Dunbar's own research suggests generational differences in this regard. Those ages 18 to 24 have much larger online social networks than those aged 55 and above. And the primacy of physical contact in the social brain hypothesis may apply less to young people who've never known life without the internet, for whom digital relationships may be just as meaningful as analog ones. And Dunbar's number mostly applies to the limit of close connections we can establish and maintain. Many of his contemporaries consider about 1,500 to be the average limit of everyday acquaintances that people can recognize. But I am endlessly interested in the implications of applying Dunbar's theories to the online world. I no longer use Facebook because Facebook sucks and also mine was hacked in like January, but I don't care enough to fix it. But I do use Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and LinkedIn. On Twitter, I have 27,500 followers and I follow 391 accounts. On Instagram, 6.6 thousand followers and I follow 976 accounts. 
On TikTok, I have 1,600 followers and I follow 63 accounts. And on LinkedIn, I literally could not care less because LinkedIn sucks. But how many of those follower-following relationships would I classify as meaningful? Are any of them meaningful? If I saw Bella Hadid in the airport, I would happily greet her without feeling awkward, but I'm not sure she would say the same of me. I wonder how social media has changed our concept of friendship. For what it's worth, Dunbar still posits that his hypothesis holds in the modern social media world. He says online relationships aren't necessarily close ones. They're not personalized. As he put it, it's extremely hard to cry on a virtual shoulder. That's a perfect example of a parasocial relationship defined by psychologists as one-sided relationships, where one person extends emotional energy and interest and time, and the other party, the persona, is completely unaware of the other's existence. It's like me to Bella Hadid. The introduction of these parasocial interactions surely changed our idea of connection, but I don't think it's really meaningfully changed our ideas of friendship. We know the difference between internet friends and Bella Hadid. Today, we know that we can make friends online. We know that we can stay connected with friends online. It's not how it used to be with your neighbors or the girl with pigtails next to you at piano, but it counts. And for the last 18 months, these online friendships have been some of our only ties to reality. More on that after a short break to hear from our friends at Fundrise. Let's be honest, high-risk, high-reward situations are enticing for a reason. For example, quitting a job you hate to travel the world or telling your best friend of eight years that you're in love with them, both the high-risk decisions. But under the right conditions, they could be immensely rewarding. Also could be the plot to an early 2000s rom-com. But the guy doesn't always get the girl, and real life isn't always eat, pray, love. That's why low-risk, high-reward situations matter. We're talking about investing in a Roth IRA, using a punch card at your local coffee shop, wearing a seatbelt, stretching after you work out. They might not get your blood pumping, but you'll be grateful when you're retired and can still touch your toes and buy your coffee. For me, one of the best, less risky decisions I've made has been investing in private real estate with Fundrise. Fundrise has account levels ranging from $10 to $100,000 that give you the opportunity to invest the right amount at the right time and price point for you. And even better, Fundrise manages everything in-house so that middlemen aren't eating up your returns. Head over to fundrise.com slash think, that's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash think to get started building out your real estate portfolio today. Let's just put it all out on the table. The pandemic changed friendships, some of them forever. I wrote to you in my newsletter in September about how my life and the people in it sometimes feel foreign. Here's a little snippet of that piece. I've lost interest in the things that once bonded me with the group of friends I made when I was 18. I found solace in things I never thought intriguing before. My life has changed, and that means that the people and the things I surround myself with might change too. Making peace with that has not been easy. And I know I'm not alone in that, but what about friendship exactly changed in the days since March 2020? A lot of it has to do with what I'm going to refer to as friend layers. And I know friend layers from my own experience, but allow me to explain. Whether you have 150 friends or 150,000 friends, not all of them are close ones. Friendship has layers, degrees. We have our core group of close friends, the ones who play an integral role in our lives, social and otherwise. The ones we call when we're heartbroken, but also when we just had a really good sandwich. But there are also outer circle friends, these so-called 
weak ties. They're perhaps not quite as important as our closest relationships. They're the people who comment fire emojis under your Instagram but probably don't know that you hate radishes. They're incredibly important to your overall social health. We need them, and lately, we've been going without them. That friend layer has been decimated by the pandemic. It's made up of people you probably don't talk to every day and maybe don't know all that well. The friends whose birth charts you don't have memorized. What happened to your relationship with them over the last 18 months? One of my favorite writers, Amanda Mull, considered these weak tie friendships mid-pandemic in a fantastic piece in The Atlantic eulogizing the loss of almost friends. Quote, the guy who's always at the gym at the same time as you. The barista who starts making your usual order while you're still at the back of the line. The co-worker from another department with whom you make small talk on the elevator, end quote. Mole articulated a feeling we're all familiar with, the loss of the peripheral friend layer. I know many of us, myself included, have a who needs them attitude when it comes to that friend layer, but I'm about to tell you why that's actually pretty misguided. Here's more from Amanda Mole, citing the work of Stanford sociologist Mark Granovetter. Quote, Casual friends and acquaintances can be as important to well-being as family, romantic partners, and your closest friends. In his initial study, for example, Granovetter found that the majority of people who got new jobs through social connections did so through people on the periphery of their lives, not close relations, end quote. Now, if you Google about friendship for long enough, you eventually find yourself reading and rereading the work of Ralph Waldo Emerson, believe it or not. So I first came across this trip down uh, AP Literature Lane, care of The New Yorker, in which Jane Hugh wrote this, quote, In his essay, Friendship, from 1841, Ralph Waldo Emerson begins with a parable. A commended stranger arrives at another's house, representing only the good and new. Brimming with expectant generosity, the two hit it off. We talk better than we are wont. We have the nimblest fancy, a richer memory, and are dumb evil as taken leave for the time. But after some dinner and some more talk, the stranger begins to intrude his partialities, his definitions, his defects into the conversation, and then suddenly, it is all over. The only friend worth having, Emerson tells us, is the one who remains somewhat unknown. That's the perhaps dramatic reenactment of the importance of weak tie friends. Friendship of all kinds matters, but we often fail to nourish those weak ties the way we would our childhood BFF. And worst of all, we don't surround ourselves with people who have the vastly different life experiences that we don't. If you're only engaging with your best friends, you're probably missing out on a huge chunk of the world. Our failure to maintain weak ties is in part because those peripheral friendships are based primarily on proximity, a concept we have missed for most of the last two years and are really only now getting used to reintroducing to our lives. Consider this from the New York Times. According to one research firm called Unicast, which analyzed GPS data from millions of cell phones, Americans gathered in groups 80% less than we did before the pandemic. If you're anything like me, that means you're a little bit out of shape. See, I went to an art exhibition opening recently, which, to be honest, is not a sentence I ever thought I would have uttered pre-pandemic, but I went. I went with my dating app boyfriend, who I guess now that we're on the finale of this season, we can start calling by his name, Coleman. Coleman and I went and looked at art, and I tried to appear mysterious and cool despite being a little out of place in this Soho storefront, and I had proximity at my fingertips. The place was teeming with Carhartt and leather blazers and probably really interesting people, and yet... I was glued to Coleman's side. 
I was reluctant to imbibe on the free wine and the raw bar. I didn't speak to a single soul other than Coleman, who I speak to almost 24-7. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to make new friends because it's hard to do as an adult And it's even harder to do as an adult who has relied on technocratic apps alone to foster her friendships for the last two years. But after writing about the importance of the potential weak tie friends I could have made at that opening, I'm hopeful that I will attend the next similar gathering with a different mindset. I mean, what do I have to lose, right? Someone doesn't want to say hi back? I think that I will live. The social network is made robust by varying degrees of closeness. We need friends, and we need acquaintances, and we need them both at the same time. And we need to understand that no two friendships are necessarily the same. In a moment, we're going to talk about staying friends with people whose opinions you couldn't disagree with more. But first, a quick message from Public, where some of my actual friends work. Some things should be hard. Like medical school. I kind of want it to be hard. If you're licensed to wield a scalpel, I hope you had to read a lot of books and practice many, many times before operating. Other things that should be hard, holding public office, teaching high school algebra, you get the idea. Some things, though, should be easy, like figuring out healthcare or voting or parallel parking. I would put investing on that list. It used to be complicated. That is until the free investing app public.com came along. Public is truly revolutionary, at least it has been for me. It didn't teach me how to parallel park, but it did demystify stocks, crypto, investment strategies. And that's why I'm an avid user of the Public app. Public wants to help you become a better investor. On Public, ownership unlocks an experience of content and education that is contextual to your portfolio. They make it easy to access thousands of stocks, funds, and cryptos starting at just $1 and give you exclusive content and access to an educational community of more than a million people. Start making investing easier for yourself and sign up at public.com. That's P-U-B-L-I-C.com to get started with $10 in free stock with the code STAYCOOL. Just remember, this offer is valid for U.S. residents that are 18 and older only and is subject to account approval. This content is not investment advice. Investing involves the risk of loss and investments are not guaranteed against loss. Open to the public, investing is a member of FINRA and SIPC. Regulatory and firm fees apply. I made a solid amount of friends in my teen years and early 20s. Most of those friendships were based on things we had in common, which in my teen years and early 20s was mostly boys, parties, and clothes. But then I started getting more political. I started to care more and read more and write more and pontificate more, and I was met with a stark reality. Just because someone also likes shopping the sales section at Revolve doesn't mean that they also believe that affirmative action works. Inevitably, friends disagree. But that disagreement has never felt as inevitable as it does today in a world characterized by fraught politics and side-taking. So how do you disagree with a friend? Can you, in good conscience, stay friends with someone who honestly doesn't see the issue with saying all lives matter? What do you do if a friend doesn't get vaccinated for political or moral reasons that make no sense to you? In short, it's difficult. That's because, as the New York Times put it, Friendships are relationships of choice, and the ties are more easily undone than those formed with relatives or romantic partners. We expect our friends to be supportive and understanding even when we aren't perfect. 
it's a lot easier to cut a friend or acquaintance out of your life than it is your Facebook uncle or your meet his murder cousin. But that doesn't mean that you should, at least not always. I'm not going to pretend that I could be friends with someone I know to be racist or sexist or cruel. I would happily trim that fat from my life. On certain issues, I am unwilling to budge. But relationships, especially friendships of choice, are more nuanced than we often realize. I can't believe I'm doing this, but I'm about to quote the character of Leslie Higgins from Ted Lasso in a late season two scene during which he's talking to Jamie Tot about Jamie's relationship with his father. Here's what Higgins says. I try to love my dad for who he is and forgive him for who he isn't. What if we applied that logic to our friendships too? I think we'd be a lot more comfortable with the notion of acceptance, a necessity to sustaining friendships or any relationships over the long term. I'll admit here and now that I have not been the most accepting friend. I'm a fan of instant gratification and an almost paralyzing perfectionist who expects the same of her friends, often unfairly. I'm not as understanding as I want to be, especially toward the people in my life with whom I disagree most. An example. There is an unfortunately sizable contingent of people in my family with whom I could not disagree more in terms of politics and general morality. I think that sometimes they are pig-headed and mercilessly lack compassion and follow bigots blindly, but they're still my family. They're still the ones who will be there when everything else goes to shit, no matter how many times I've brought up prison abolition at Thanksgiving dinner. There are minds that can be changed and minds that cannot. I will never stop trying to speak peacefully, of course, to my friends and family about the things that I know are right, equity and fairness and accountability, But at the end of the day, I have come to accept that my parents and I will never agree on some things, especially political things. And as an aside, maybe with a little prodding, my father will finally agree to an appearance on the show. But I accept that my parents' interpretations of the world around them are not manifested out of nothingness. They're a complicated tapestry of the life experiences my parents have gone through, just as my beliefs are for me. I'm sure my mom and dad are listening to this episode and thinking, but where was this understanding the time you got so mad that you almost cried at family lunch at the Flatwoods Cafe? To which I say, you're right. I'm an incredibly passionate person, and I know my passion sometimes translates into a regrettable sort of pretentious mental elitism. More often than I care to admit, I use my privilege of knowing a lot of random things to attempt to undercut other people. I'll cite unrelated statistics and stories not as a means of fostering conversation, but as a defense mechanism to make myself seem bigger and stronger. It's spineless, but it's true. And when that doesn't work, honestly, I cry. I get so mad that I cry. I'm telling you this to come clean. I have not always practiced what I preach. I've been moody and short-sighted and judgmental and prejudicial, but I'm working on it. The older I get, the more I realize that relationships are what matter most to me. I've lost some good friends and some bad ones. I've grown closer to people who were once just acquaintances. I've exchanged pleasantries and I've grossly overshared in the last 27 or so years. But at the core of what makes my life so beautiful are the moments that I get to share it with others. And I would hate for disagreements over who should be president for the next four years to ruin what could be a relationship that lasts a lifetime. So I'm committing myself here and now to attempt to be more accepting, to stop saying things like I could never be friends with a Republican. And I'm committing to arguing better with people who might have voted for Donald Trump, to being less judgmental and pretentious, to resolving conflict and de-escalating my own passion, to identifying the complaint, not the criticism, 
to be specific and to avoid casting blame unfairly, to air differences like an adult. Because that's what makes friendships last. And in a world that almost always feels out to get us, those friendships are the sustenance that we need most. Devoted Thinking is Cool listeners will remember that I like to cite statistics and studies and concrete evidence in my episodes. Perhaps it's my slight but perpetual skepticism, perhaps it's that journalism degree I earned, but either way, I'd like to point to real, tangible evidence when I'm making an argument. That's why I cite so many pieces and interview so many people. I'm always out to illustrate what I have found to be the truth in a specific and inscrutable way. With today's topic, that feels almost impossible. How am I to seek out evidence that friendship and connection matter? I think that I can't, because no numbers and no studies and no experts really do it justice. We know that friendships and relationships matter because we live their importance every single day. That's why this episode has been a solo mission. We don't need reassurance that friendships matter from some sort of expert in friendship. We know they do. We know they're fraught and complicated and steeped in shared history. We know they're funny and sad and beautiful and joyous and heartbreaking. We know that our relationships to each other define our relationships to ourselves and vice versa. We know that this, friendship, connection, relationships, matters. But because you can take the girl out of mock trial, but you can't take the mock trial out of the girl, I will offer this concrete evidence from the New York Times to show that friendships matter, especially when we're facing difficult circumstances. All right, here we go. How powerful is friendship? Researchers at the University of Virginia wanted to find out whether friendship influences how we approach the challenges of daily life. In an unusual experiment, researchers stood at the base of a steep hill, a 26-degree incline, on the university campus and asked 34 students as they walked by to help them in an experiment. Some students were by themselves, others were walking in pairs. Each student was given a backpack filled with weights equal to about 20% of their body weight. While the students may have had the impression they were going to have to climb the hill, the researchers simply asked them to estimate how steep the climb would be. Notably, Students standing alone perceived the hill slant as steeper and thought it would be harder to climb while carrying the weighted pack. But students who were standing next to a friend thought the hill looked easier to climb and gave lower estimates of its steepness. Interestingly, the longer the two friends had known each other, the less steep the hill appeared. Other studies support the notion that social support helps us cope with stress. When female college students were asked to complete challenging math tasks, their heart rates went up. But when they were asked to complete the math problems with a friend in the room, their heart rates were lower. Scientists also know that when rhesus monkeys are moved into a new environment, the level of stress hormones in their blood increases. But when a monkey is moved along with her preferred companion, monkeys form friendships too, the stress hormones measured in her blood were much lower. Now, in most of those examples, friends were bolstered by each other when facing dire circumstances. I'm pretty sure they said this in the Stone Age too, but today feels as if our circumstances are pretty dire. Sure, we have access to incredible life-extending technology and endless information and more options than we know what to do with, but at the same time, we're existing in a period of sincere uncertainty. What will come of this world? Will we solve climate change? Will we work to repair the colossal and systemic wrongdoings of our ancestors? Will we seek common ground and shared experiences or continue to eviscerate each other over the smallest disagreement? Will we seek and accept accountability? Will we offer people autonomy over their own bodies? Will we work to, as I said at the start of this episode, leave the world better than we found it? 
My hope is that the answer is yes, but I'm profoundly aware of how difficult it will be to engineer that kind of world. With each opportunity to make this place better, we simultaneously face an unfathomable challenge. Changing for the better isn't easy, but as the evidence shows, facing any challenge is a lot easier when you do it with friends. A great deal more than 150 people listen to this show, and (laughs) thank God. But I think even Dunbar would agree that we're all a community. I've been able to face and think through challenges because of ideas and support and friendly, pure-hearted criticism that all of you have offered me. You are part of my circle, and because of that, I feel invincible even on my weakest days. I told you this in the trailer for season two of Thinking is Cool. This season, we're exploring the trajectory of the modern 20-something, from the general horniness and angstiness we feel when faced with the reality of existing today, to the ways that we deal with it, to the solutions that will guide what can hopefully be a brighter future for our shared global society. This season is about identifying the biggest struggles that we face, and in the span of eight or so weeks, coming to a place of optimism. It took 10 weeks, but I'm hopeful that we got there together. All season, I thought this finale would be about my deep yearning to go off the grid. I was prepared to even try doing it, to try going off the grid to see what kind of Walden I might be able to find here in Manhattan. I was convinced that the pinnacle of my human experience would be this poetic self-excision from what I fondly referred to on more than one occasion as our shared hellscape of a world. So much is wrong, so much is broken, so many people are terrible. What could be better than voluntarily getting the hell out of Dodge? Well. Something kind of funny has happened as I've gone through this season. I still feel my characteristic and vitriolic anger toward a select few people, including but not limited to Joe Rogan and Mark Zuckerberg, but I've realized that focusing on what's wrong matters quite a lot. It's necessary, but it's just as necessary to focus on what is right. What are we getting right? I think friendship might be up there. Sure, it's become more difficult to forge and maintain friendships given everything, but we know deep down that we are in this together. There are, as the poet Taylor Swift called them, invisible strings that lead us to each other. So I hope today you will spend some time thinking about the ways connection is stronger than disagreement, about the ways that friendships and bonds are strong and resilient. Ask yourself and ask your friends, regardless of layer, What does it mean to you to create friendships in the modern world? How do you think technology has changed your idea of closeness? Do you actively make new friends or acquaintances? How did the pandemic change the meaning of friendship for you? Do you feel better or worse about your friendships today? Have you ever made a friend on the internet? And I don't mean dating apps. Do you think you know how to disagree with a friend without ruining a friendship? And if so, how do you do it? And as always, let me know what you think. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thinking is Cool. It's been a sincere honor and pleasure to bring you episodes every Monday this season, and I cannot begin to explain how much it means to me that some of my ramblings here in front of this mic inspired actual conversations for so many of you. All I've ever wanted out of this show, and in all honesty, my life, is to inspire people to think a little differently to imagine the world from a perspective outside of their own, to use the head on their shoulders for good, to appreciate and celebrate nuance, and hopefully to become a little more curious. I'm so grateful that so many of you have done just that during my second season of this show. I'm gonna take a couple weeks off to recuperate and recenter and get ready for what's shaping up to be an epic third season. That's right, I'm not going anywhere. 
I will be back with season three of Thinking is Cool in January. Before then, I'm going to be dropping into this feed here and there with some incredible interviews that I'm so thrilled to share with all of you. So keep an eye out for more thoughtful conversations and newsletters and ideas in the coming weeks. I'm so grateful to Fundrise, our season two presenting sponsor for making this show possible. And I'm so grateful to all of you for coming along on this wild ride. Cheers to all that lies ahead and cheers to each of you. Remember, thinking is cool and so are you. I'm Kinsey Grant, and I'll see you next time.